Good evening. Welcome to the CG Pro podcast. I am excited to be doing this today. This is a pretty historic day in the world of computer graphics and uh, very excited also to have Phil Galler with us as our guest tonight. Uh, Phil, welcome. It's great to have you here. Yeah, and glad to be here. This is great. Awesome. Yeah, F Phil is a prolific technologist for anyone that doesn't know. Um, he is CEO uh, and co-founder of um, a couple of companies. Um, so currently NEP Studios yeah. um, and a founder of Flux Machina as well. And having come through, I know, a, an amazing journey of working on some really great projects like The Mandalorian and Solo and lots of live events. And I know that you were um, uh, very influential in PRG um, being a you know significant part of that. So I, I'm going to stop there before I uh, do a bad job of introducing you and, and uh, say welcome. Great to have you. Oh yeah, glad glad to be here and um, yeah, no glad to, glad to be able to join the conversation. Excited to talk about obviously some of the recent news around UE5 and I'm wearing my UE5 shirt today. And then oh, cool. um, you know looking forward to talking more about virtual production and and what we're up to. Amazing. Um, so yeah, at the beginning, I always like to ask people how um, how this kind of began for you. What what um, how did you get into what you do for a living? You know, the the kind of origin story, what early inspirations, and yeah, no, it's a good origin story actually. It's um um so I uh, I actually went to school. I went to Emerson College, so Boston. Um, and I uh, born and raised in Boston or uh, near Boston, 10 minutes, 15 minutes outside city ish. Um, and I, um, I, uh, I went to school actually for theatrical lighting, um, as a lighting designer for, uh, mainly TV and then junior senior era time period. Um, I transitioned into television lighting. Um, I sort of was fascinated by, I think it was a little more technology, a little more science, I think. Um, uh, and then actually in 08, uh, before I graduated, the economy crashed. Um, we went to, you know, sort of depression. I remember that. Stuff. Yeah. Um, and all the um, theater work I've been doing dried up. Um, and so I was kind of faced with this weird choice about, like, what do I do next in my life? And um, this opportunity arose, um, which was uh, uh, my roommate at the time, who I still work with, um, a roommate at the time said, I got a job at, at ABC in Burbank, and I'm going to get on a plane in a couple of weeks, and I'm just going to go to L.A. and figure it out. And I um, I decided uh, I would do that. So I um I uh, I did. I got on a plane with him. Uh, two weeks later, we landed in Burbank, and um, I uh, I basically started a brand new hunt for a brand new career that I really hadn't thought about um, in LA. And um, I actually ended up at PRG, um, and I ended up uh, as an intern there. Um, and um, I worked through the PRG sort of. If you're not familiar with PRG, they're a um, uh, sensor production resource group. They're a an equipment um, and services vendor. Um, uh, based out of New York originally, but they're international now. They have offices all over the place. Um, and they, um, uh, yeah, so I ended up at PRG as a coordinator eventually, and then um, as a moving light programmer and a media server programmer. And then um, as sort of things evolved, I took the media server programming <laughs> maybe a little too seriously. And I, uh, I moved into using uh, media servers and um, let's call them extensible technologies in um and display technologies and rendering technologies into the film world um and it was uh um not something that we set out to necessarily do it was something that we thought would kind of you know we were doing these jobs like oblivion right every once every couple of years we we're doing a pretty big job like that and um and then about three years into doing that it uh, really took off and it was something like every you know every six months we were doing an oblivion style job um and uh found myself working with lucasfilm and industrial light and magic and um uh, you know, a bunch of major VFX studios. And um, it was through that that we we had already formed Lux. So we crafted Lux into a larger, um, sort of a larger business around um, the rendering and uh, real-time technologies and um, broadcast workflows. And um, yeah, ended up uh, 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 being acquired by NEP. Um, and now I run, I'm the CTO of NEP Virtual Studios, which is the division that holds Lux um uh halon in a group called prism which is the um uh, uh our stages company so we've got a, a whole bunch of different technologies that we now um sort of champion and um yeah that's sort of my uh, the uh abridged version of my adventure but that's uh that's how i got here 
Wow. That's quite an adventure of all kinds of different things from art to engineering and entrepreneurship. Lots of, lots of things involved there. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, now I'm somewhat familiar with parts of that journey as well. So I definitely resonate with, with uh, the story. And it's really interesting to hear how you got going. Cause I, th I think a lot of people that listen to this, you know, some people are already into their careers, but some people are trying to figure out how, uh, what they want to do or how to get into various different yeah. parts of the industry. I think it's really interesting to, to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, the thing I learned, um, I think the big, like the, the biggest thing I learned in this adventure is that you don't know if you don't try. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of places where like I could have stopped. I could have not asked the question. I could have not taken the leap. Um, but I think by having like, you know, like a pretty good head in your shoulders, but also like a pretty good initiative and drive to like move forward. Um, you get around that fear of asking questions. Um, and, I, and really that's what I've credited to. It'd be like, Hey, is it okay if I go do this job or Hey, can I shadow this person or Hey, can I, you know, how do you get there? You know what I mean? And that, that's, that's sort of how I move forward. So, yeah. So a kind of mix of curiosity and courage. Yeah. And yeah, yeah definitely yeah. thirst to learn. Um, pretty much definitely thirst to learn. Yeah. Well, I, I resonate with that too. Um, especially running a school. <laughs> it's definitely a very important part of that. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, can you t can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the uh, is it essentially the same company now effectively that you work with Lux and NEP? Good question. Yeah. So um, so uh, there were uh, two original co-founders, three original co-founders of Lux Machina, Milton Diego, Zach Alexander, and myself. I joined the business after they would started it. Um, then we formalized it into a, a larger business in about 2009, 2010, something like that. Uh, 2010, yeah, 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, and um, uh, around Oblivion. Um, and then when we got acquired, we also got acquired with Halon, which is a uh, previs and uh, visualization company. Um, and then we started a new company called Prism, um, which is a stages company. So um, XR stages, volumes, that kind of thing. So we've got a handful of volumes that we're championing. So um, at the point at which that happened, Zach took over um, Lux. He runs Lux still as the business that everyone knows and loves. Um, he's doing a great job um, building that business into a much larger now international company with offices uh, in, well, U.S., in Los Angeles and Atlanta, and then in um, England. We recently opened up an office there. They're scaling that business um, pretty dramatically. And then... I am. Um, I moved into a CTO role, um, which is a chief technology officer role across all three businesses, working to unify things like um, you know workflows, technologies that we're using, um, but we're also working on innovating in um, some software endeavors, um, which will become probably a little more clear closer to the end of this year. And then um, we're working towards um, uh, also unifying processes for bad operations on stage and creating assets and um, getting those assets to a stage and then actually going through the entire process from pre-production to post-production and making sure that we engage with partners on our stages um, and in our pop-up businesses that are pop-up shows um, that we are um, uh, we're aligned across um, uh, the expectations of our clients as well as uh, the end goal of hopefully capturing as much in camera as we can. So really we're a, a new company um, that's got a couple of other companies in it that were existing and then one new company. And the goal of the larger um, new business is really to um, hopefully provide uh, a great foothold for people to continue to build and empower art through the use of technology. And that's the goal. And so NEP Virtual Studios is a new division at NEP, which is um, I think they're the largest broadcaster in the world. So they, um, you know, broadcast trucks, stages, um, um, uh, broadcast centers, um, live events, um, you name it, they're, they're involved in um, usually from a video and uh, broadcast technology side. And so we bring this sort of film and art and um, I think looking a little more towards the, like the metaverse and what that might mean down the line and how we're gonna deal with transmedia and stuff like that. So that, those are largely my focuses um, in my new role right now. Wow. So it's a bit, yeah, coming from virtual production before it was even called that, uh, going through experiences like oblivion which really was you know essentially that um and no i i was all involved in this in a similar way in jungle book and early things that were not really being um that visible at the time um you, it must be amazing for you to to kind of watch it having grown and particularly get really visible and popular in the last kind of few years yeah it's it's been really interesting actually i think um you know sort of like i said like we we really thought that what we had done in Oblivion was great. It was great. 
loved doing it. It was a, a great experience. I mean, I think it was the definitely the precipice we needed for realizing that we had to start a business that would separate us from the vendor, right? At, at some degree, you know, we were um, became a consulting company, right? And I think, um, you know, uh, the the goal really was um, to maybe do one of those shows every once in a while. And in the meantime, we were doing, you know, American Music Awards and the Golden Globes, and we we're working on a bunch of sports shows and live TV and corporate events and all this stuff. And I think it was, um, you know, we don't think of it. I mean, even today we still struggle, I think, with the language of virtual production or in-camera visual effects or what is it really called. Like we don't, we don't know what it's really called because we've been doing iterations of it for what feels like 15 years. It has been 15 years, right? Yeah. In many ways, you know. Um, uh, we were just reminiscing about this the other day. My uh, my uh, business partner Zach, um, he actually one of his first jobs. Um, integrating complex systems like this was actually on the original reboot of the Star Trek movie. And that was like in 08, something like that. And it was, it's funny, like we've gone back in the last couple of weeks and we've been looking at milestones just as a, a, a thing we're sort of working through and to understand sort of how you get from point A to point B. And it's, it's interesting, like the through line of technology um, was always there, right? We're going to use technology. We're going to figure out how to use tech that maybe is applied in, in other industries, the broadcast industry. How do we bring some of that tech into the film industry? How to bring some of the film industry into the tech, into the broadcast world. And um, it was around 2016 where we started to formalize all that into products, right? Service, like real formal services that people can come and get. And um, and prior to that, we'd sort of been a lot more, I would say, a la carte about it. You know, you come to us, we help consult, maybe we do a job, maybe, you know, it's a little more amorphous. And it was really 2016 was this year where we sort of crystallized all the stuff and said, okay, well, like, clearly this is a real business. We need to either treat it like it's a real business and we need to grow an empire or we need to give us up and go back to being vendors and like figure out how we're going to make that work. Um, and obviously we doubled down and said, well, we're going to grow it into a much larger business. Um, and uh, I think because of that, we were prepared for COVID, which then amplified all of this to some extent. Um, and I think at that point it was understanding if, um, A, were we going to survive COVID? Because there's definitely a chance we weren't just like everybody else. Um, you know, yeah. we're, there were, there were seven of us. Um, you know, it's a small group to, and, and, um, uh, maybe there were 10 of us at the beginning of COVID. Um, and, um, we were able to really turn that around and use COVID to amplify the business. You said, and I think it's now leaning into or learning more about how to lean into things like the framing of virtual production. Like, um, it's still a little uncomfortable when we all talk about it in a room together, but we realize that like as an outside, outside looking in people just assume that's what we do so we have to kind of lean into that a little bit right you kind of lean into the market people want you to be in or you lean into the services people think you're doing because they're expecting you to do them right and and, and it helps you understand how to define your business a little bit better but i think from us it's definitely this weird we joke about it you know oh yeah before icv effects before virtual production there was all this other stuff and like it's kind of a it's you know it's an inside joke a little bit for us um yeah but it's definitely interesting seeing it evolve right i mean so many businesses have cropped up which is, is great to see, especially uh, during a downturn, right? During, you know, yep. massive inflation and during COVID. And you, you still see so many great businesses and people able to, I think, successfully pivot, right? Which I think is the success stories that people able to pivot from traditional production into, into what's called virtual digital production, right? Um, and I think that's really the success story for everybody, not just us, right? Is how so many people are able to make um, lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, resonates with me very, very um, significantly there as well. We, you know, we grew this thing during the pandemic as well, and yeah. that was the result of a pivot from a, you know, a live in-person kind of company. It was, was, yeah, had to had to make some changes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's in a lot of ways, there's been been some really good things that's come out of it. Um, very challenging initially, but uh, yeah, there's been some. T tell me about how how it uh, how it was in the beginning of the <laughs> pandemic. Say what? Yeah, what, uh... Um, uh, it's tough. I mean, it was really tough. I mean, I remember we sent everyone home. I think on March thirteenth, um, and uh, of twenty twenty, and didn't have any plans to go back to the office. Um, and I think we're. I would. I would say probably January of this year of twenty twenty two is when we're formally back in the office and pretty full force. I was in the office today. There were thirty people in there. Um, you know, from from all the different companies. Um, I think. Um, from my end, it, it was really fascinating in, in getting to a point where we were having to have sometimes daily and maybe even hourly strategic conversations about what was the trajectory of the business. You know, we had, as a small business, been always very conservative. Um, we had, um, you know, we didn't have any outside money. There was no no one to pay back. So, like, we were pretty good at protecting um, a war chest. And we used our war chest to pay our people. Um, and at some point, that runs out. And we did have a moment, right, where... Um, uh, um, <laughs> we did have a moment where, um, 
we got to a point and we had to make a decision about where we're going to let people go or not. And I think, um, you know, I'd like to look back and think we made the right decision because we didn't let anyone go. I think we did the best thing we could for our people at the time. And I think it's important that everyone who was, at least for me, it's important that running a business, we acknowledge that the business is only so successful as the people are empowered to make it successful that make up the business. Right. And like, um, if we had cut a bunch of people, we would probably definitely not be here today having this conversation. We would have dissolved the business and, um, had a much different trajectory. And I think what we did is we evaluated slashing salaries and we slashed salaries on a Friday and on a Monday, we actually got our PPP loan approved finally. And we had the following Monday, like 48 hours later, we had to call everyone back and go, never mind, we're not cutting your salaries. You're all back to work. Um, uh, sorry for the fire drill. And um, I think we ended up having to hire two people on the back of that PPP loan because of how much we had applied for or whatever, which wasn't much, but it was enough to cover us for about two more months or three months. And we had looked at, you know, quite honestly, September, October being the moment in which um, we were going to have to, we were going to have to close. And I think um, it was in May or June, about two months after we had gotten the money that we, um, uh, we didn't need it anymore. Uh, we were so busy. I mean, it was insanely, insanely busy. Um, we had done a series of, um, uh, let's call them NDA projects that you've probably all seen for some large corporate companies during May. And we were really testing out COVID protocols for, um, uh, we were actually the first show back to work in a corporate, uh, I think actually for the entire union, but for the IATSE, we were one of the first shows to go back to work in May. Um, and we're actually testing out IA guidelines. Um, and then, um, um, we, uh, we started to scale. Um, by the time we hit December, there were 20 of us, um, of 2020. And by the time we hit December of 2021, there were 70 people. And now we're in the wow. near, just at Lux. And now we're near, I think, 85 or 90. Um, and it was uh, just a massive uptick. People wanting to build stages. People needed operations, needed brain bars. They needed VADs. They needed pre-vis. They needed post-vis. They needed to understand what they were actually getting themselves into. Um, and uh, I think it was really interesting for us. Um, uh, massive scaling problems, right? As any large company or small company become a large company would have. Um, and learned a lot of lessons very quickly. But that's what COVID was for us. COVID was a um, the, the roller coaster of, well, we're closing the business to the high of, oh, well, we're going to be able to hire a whole bunch of people to the low of, well, we got to figure out how to scale a business at a infrastructure level that's going to support uh, 20 more people than we ever thought we'd have or need to deal with. Um, you know, we had this goal of, well, I remember having the conversation in 2019, well, we'll never be bigger than 25 people, so we don't need to worry about these things. And then at some point, you hit 26, we're like, well, we'll never be bigger than a 50-person business, so uh, we don't have to worry about these things. And that number just kept going up, and we very quickly realized that, like, we needed to solve the problem much more long-term. But anyways, yeah, um, it was it was, um, it was was really interesting. Um, it was a massive scaling challenge, a massive learning curve. Um, for a bunch of people who didn't go to business school. So that was a bit of a bit of a bit of fun. But yeah, I mean, we got through it, obviously. And um, and we're still feeling the pinch, I think, like everybody else, right? Like there's content has come back and people want stuff for cheaper and they want more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I don't know. It was interesting, but um, it was definitely a challenge. I see like, loads of questions popping up. So I'm not <laughs> yes. sure if I can answer them or what um, the right approach is. <laughs> it's a great. I I'll uh, I'll bring a couple up. So I I think um one um thanks for uh, for the story it was really really fascinating especially as another business owner um yeah so here we are today big moment in cg yeah. unreal 5 just it's obviously been out in preview and uh pre-release um now it's come out yeah um, there's a lot of excitement about that today and a lot of hype and i think probably a lot of questions as well um so what um there are a number of questions in here from the the audience as well about unreal 5. um one one we can just take from the audience i guess uh, somebody's asking is unreal 5 ready for end display good good question so i think um uh my experience is that depending on what you're doing it might work but um i would probably wait till later in the year to really roll it out into production i think look we've hit yeah. a great milestone today the reality is there's going to still be some things that need to get worked out my experience is up to this point, we've been, you know, dabbling obviously in a, a pretty good relationship with um, Epic uh, on, on a couple of fronts. Um, and my experience has been that we are, um, uh, you know, we probably aren't going to put it into real production until I would say August, September timeframe would be my, be my guess. Okay. There will be things that are definitely broken right now. There'll be things that get fixed. And, you know, just like any major software launch, I think at this scale, you, you find edge cases, especially when you're pushing the boundaries of how you use the technology. And I think that's, 
that's where we are. Do I expect most of the core stuff should work? Yeah. Do I think there's going to be challenges as things evolve? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, experienced that going through the Lion King and changing Unity versions in the middle of the production, exactly. <laughs> that type of thing. Um, it's always interesting, but, you know, it makes you, makes you learn and pivot really quickly and figure stuff out. When you have to figure stuff out quickly, somehow you do. Yeah. Um, exactly. But so, so it sounds like you're saying um, get, get interested in it, test it, um, do that maybe in parallel, kind of stick with things that work. Um, yeah, a lot of our projects are still in 427.2, um, and uh, we're starting to maintain, I think, two pipelines, they have a 5 and a 427.2, and as soon as we are 100% confident in flipping to 5, we'll flip to 5. Do you have any kind of um, tips for people on that? Because I know that a lot of people are going to be in that position wanting to yeah. <laughs> get wanting to, to gear up and get ready for it, but at the same time not doing that on a live project necessarily where there's more yeah. risk. I am... Um... So my goal and our goal, I think, as a business is always to find low risk um, cases where we can use um, new technologies, right? One of the ways we do this is we partner with groups um, like uh, maybe like ETC, right? Um, like Eric Weaver's group, um, or uh, we do smaller music videos or film projects in the office in our test volume. Um, and that gives me the ability to um, uh, test out a bunch of new technologies at, at what I would call low risk to the business, right? Like if I deploy a new version of the engine directly to a, a large studio project and I have a failure, it's going to be bad for everybody. Um, so what we do is we tend to find um, smaller projects that are more risk of um, more risk tolerant. And we have an open conversation with this client, the clients, right? If we ourselves aren't the client, which oftentimes we are internal marketing piece, a music video we're trying to get made a small short film we're going to direct. It gives us the ability to really target the issues we see in the technology through our testing and put it into I'm going to call it more practical use. Although I guess you could debate that depending on how big you're going to go. Um, but I also think it's important to point out that like uh, you can know 427.2 like the back of your hand. It's still running to edge cases where there's problems on stages. Yeah. We do all the time, right? And it would be foolish of me to stand here and say, yeah, yeah, we test, we test, we test, and then it's perfect. Realize we test, we test, we test. And we still find issues when we get into shows where we tested for months. And like, you just have to have the infrastructure and the support. Um, and I think Epic provides phenomenal support. We also have to have software developers and you have to have people who are familiar with the system and you have to have TDs who are really fluent in maneuvering around problems and are comfortable troubleshooting live. And I guess it's just the reality of the world we're in. And it's going to continue being this way, right? Whether or not yep. it's Unreal or it's, a, you know, Unity or that, da, 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 whatever it is, right, is sort of immaterial, right? It's that like as, as long as we're on the edge of technology, we're always going to find problems. Um, and the thing that I think separates the people who succeed and the people who fail is um, if you're succeeding, you have the ability to communicate clearly about the problems that you see and then having an a educated conversation about how you're going to deal with them as opposed to letting them bog you down. Um, and sometimes it may be a much more honest conversation than anybody wants to have, which is like, okay, this isn't working. And like, we need to have an honest conversation about it not working and it's not going to do the thing we thought it would do no matter how much we tested it. Now they're in a real world production environment. Things are moving too quickly. Someone's asked for changes that aren't part of the discussion. Like let's sit down on the table and I'll have a quick five minute chat about how we move forward as a group. But I think as long as you're not afraid to do that and to like really be transparent at the end of the day, like the thing that's the most important is the success of the show. And as long as you're moving towards that, when you think about how you deal with all these problems that come up, no matter what you do, like you'll be moving in the right direction because it's also in everyone else's interest. So you're at the other end of the table with, to make sure the show is successful. Right. So, yeah, being flexible and adaptable, having a good crew around you of problem solvers um, and generalists and maybe a plan B and yeah. the, the the ability to be really honest with where you are and be able to react quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Great. Um, so what are you excited about with Unreal 5 on this amazing day? We've seen like these great presentations. <laughs> yeah today which uh, blown uh, my mind for sure <laughs> yeah it's cool right um uh i think some of the um uh i think for me there's some fluid stuff i think i saw that i'm pretty excited about um volumetrics um uh we've working on a lot of projects related to clouds and so i think we can get mm. more improvements there but i think really it's the ability to and, and i'll be honest i don't i don't know we're there yet like i think we still have three or four years until we're like truly at this moment in time where things have totally converged, but we're so much closer today to a moment where I think high poly, high quality assets can be used in a similar pipeline or the same pipeline as game ready work. Um, and to me, that's a, a, 
putting the qualitative of it all aside, the fact that we can all move in one direction, I think, as a media and entertainment industry and try to come together and coalesce around unified standards because we're not necessarily having to every single time go, oh, we do need a game version of that and we do need a VR version of that. And, like we are getting much, much closer. And again, it's still a few years. This is a, definitely a milestone on the road that I know obviously everybody's marching towards is, is this total unity and, and parity between what's a VFX final asset what's a game ready asset, what's an asset that's going to run on my switch. Right. And I think we're, we're looking at, at that. And I think this is a huge milestone there. And then on top of it, all the qualitative improvements that come with Nanite and Lumen. I mean, I think Nanite is a, a for me, a major improvement in the way we think about assets um, and where we can bifurcate our pipelines in terms of dealing with transmedia assets. Um, and I, I really um, looking forward to seeing what great art people make with, with such a really powerful tool. Um, and I think, we already see some of that with the Matrix Awakening, right? Like we see some amazing procedural tool sets powered by Houdini in UE5. And I think like that, to me, that's the future. Like we we do a ton of work in Houdini. Um, uh, we build out a bunch of tools that work really well for us as a business. Um, even though we maybe seem like the least last business who would need Houdini, um, we use Houdini for a lot of design and engineering workflows because it's procedural and parametric nature. And being able to move those into UE and now get even closer to being photo real, I think is huge for our clients. It's really interesting to hear that you guys use it. I mean, I, I, I'm a ma massive, rabid fan of Houdini as well. I've taught it for a number of years and used it for a lot as well. And it is, to me, it's the most powerful 3D software in the world and the most flexible. I, mean, I used to be a programmer too, so it, it kind of makes sense to me. But it's now becoming something that they've, they've worked on the UX as well quite a bit. It's, it's allowing more people into that conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we... we... I would say probably a couple times a week we have it in part of our pipeline um in even in just the design process and you know we're not making art a lot so for us it's it's a it's really an engineering and parametric design tool um with the addition of a beautiful render right like being able to use mantra karma right is it, phenomenal i think karma i think is um but yeah. then the interoperability through hda to use them in the engine right in unreal and to like actually sort of push the boundaries there with um you know uh whether it's actually an HDA or it's an Alembic cache you've exported from Houdini and brought in. But I think the HDA is the ability to start to make procedural creativity um, possible inside an engine like that with ray tracing is, is a I think a phenomenal milestone that, I mean, we're seeing the, the, the beauty of, was it, they get millions and millions of people, I think downloaded that force the um, matrix awakening. And I think uh, that's telling, right? Like it's telling that people are interested in engaging the technology. People are interested in understanding some of the new, features they might have available to them but more importantly they man they really want to be immersed in in in, in these unfathomable wor worlds right and like that's what this is all about is about tell better stories immerse people more frequently more fluently in a language that a visual language that they want to interact with and that's i think what we see today right yeah i was going to ask you um how the the real time the the advent i guess of real time uh being used in film and live events how that how that's changed things for for you over the years yeah we started dabbling and i guess we defined and this is what gets back into the virtual production of it all um i think we 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 feel like we've always as a business i think we feel like we've always engaged in real time right like having a traditional pre-rendered media server in 2010 didn't mean that you were just hitting play and stepping back. It meant you were hitting play and then you were laying layering, layering other stuff on top of it. You were doing it in real time, right? You were adding additional logos, adding additional effects, adding additional color changes, doing color correction in real time. And sure, it was going to a 2D canvas. I think for us, we always have viewed it as if we've worked in real time. And I think what we're seeing is an evolution of real time, being able to do more. And that's how we view it is that we've just brought more of real time into the group and into the business. Um, and I think for us, it's, it's really important that we continue to do that, right? Real time, um, carefully done real time. I think this is where the challenge of real time is. It's easy to get carried away very quickly, especially in broadcast. Um, things like, you know, we used Touch Designer and Notch and, you know, all the stuff prior to Unreal, I think, in its current form. Um, and now using Unreal um, and uh, still using some of those other things, Notch and Touch Designer, et cetera, but um, largely using Unreal and, and, and being able to find avenues for, um, uh, bringing more real-time interactivity into shows, data-driven graphics, gameplay interactivity, stuff like that is something that is changing the face of um, events, right? Uh, from corporate events where they want data-driven graphics on screens to esports events where you want reactive uh, animations that happen based on what's happening in the gameplay. That's stuff that we couldn't do five to ten years ago, right? And like it just wasn't the horsepower wasn't there. 
the interconnectivity wasn't there, the language wasn't there. Um, and I think we're now at a point where we get calls weekly where people want to do reactive and responsive content that's driven in real time. And I think it's now, you know, something's real when the clients are asking for it, as opposed to you just kind of going out and trying to like get the thing. You know, I think we look at it like if you look at 3D, right? Nobody was clamoring for 3D TV sets. But like all of our clients are clamoring for XR stages or VR or some type of interactive real time content creation. Um, and to me, that's a clear sign. This is something that will stick around and we need to grow into for sure. Do you, do you guys use um, custom, this is a question come from the audience as well, that do you do you run custom builds of Unreal Engine or do you run off, off the shelf? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say we predominantly use custom builds of the engine and we make modifications to the engine when we do. Uh, uh, our, most of our shows require those changes. Um, uh, some of them are really simple, like we need to implement a piece of code that wasn't in the engine to expose something from a blueprint or something like that. That's easy stuff. Um, I think we have, ha have uh, I would say, more evolved changes to the engine than that, that change, you know, maybe how time is referenced or works in the engine, stuff like that. But I can't talk about too much, but I what I can say is that, yeah, we're, we are almost exclusively using custom versions of the engine for our shows. Right. And sometimes into the core of Unreal actually changing. Yeah, the, almost the always into the core um, of the engine code and changing something core to the engine. Um, usually related to um, being able to access more features as opposed to be able to fix things. Like We're not really yeah. trying to fix things. We're trying to expand stuff. I think when it comes to fixing, we believe that like if there's a really a problem, we should expose that problem to Epic and Epic should fix it for the community, right? The community, we shouldn't be yeah. getting ahead because we know there's a problem that we fix. What we should be doing is getting ahead because we're creative thinkers that are providing more tools, you know, and it, sometimes those tools and empowering those tools requires making changes to how the engine fundamentally works um, as opposed to fixing a problem that's stopping us from doing the work successfully. Right. Yeah. And Epic seem pretty good at being responsive. They're one of the more responsive companies I've worked with for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Very collaborative, very community driven, very, um, very hungry for this and enthusiastic about it, which is, Part of, I think what makes this moment so exciting because they they're very excited about it. The world is now excited about it. it. Seems like a lot more people have suddenly got really interested in in CG through this. Like, exactly. I mean, you see so many people engaging with it now, and I think today was a good sign too, right? Like this felt like not a big blockbuster event. It felt like a really nice homage to the community, right? Like going going, hey, like this is what people are using our software for. Like look at all the cool stuff you can do with it, as opposed to. Hey, here's a real big show that we're, you know, we're we're doing, right? And I thought it was really nice. I thought it was a really nice sort of touching thing to just sort of go back through and see how people were, were starting to be able to innovate using, you know, a new platform. Cool. So uh, we have a, another question that came in um, asking, can you speak uh, about the best way to prepare to be a virtual production supervisor? Sure. Or um, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, um yeah so i think like I'm, I'm a pretty big proponent of this um like one of the things that i think we and, and a lot of our staff do especially like our um core staff um uh they have experience in a lot of different elements of production like they truly understand i think this is and i think this is what makes myself successful like it, it but also and i mean that humbly but also like in the the sense like i think this is what makes a good person in production successful and i think it's important to remember that we're talking about virtual production supervising what you're really talking about is being a member of a production team understanding the needs and the expectations and the requirements um you know of everyone else's job and i'm not saying like you should go out and like do somebody else's job what i'm saying is have an intelligent conversation with a customer and understand what their requirements are for them to be able to work in a space, right? Understand what it takes for them to put their job together. Understand what the department um, structure looks like, right? Understand how does uh, our department and set tech work? Um, truly understand all those aspects. I think once you do that, um, what you'll realize is that virtual production is a little bit of all these things, right? It's having a conversation with the costume designer. So when they go in the volume, they understand that the color of the costumes is gonna react differently in the volume than it will in sunlight. And like having a conversation about the color of that and going to set and art department, having a conversation up front about how they are gonna define the materials um, on the ground that are gonna be extended into the virtual world, right? And then I go, whether it's green screen or LED, sort of material, right? Like you wanna define those things up front and have these conversations, then go to the audio department and have a conversation about how if you're working in an LED volume, it's basically just a giant reflective dish that reflects all the audio in the worst way possible all the time. Yeah. And you can mitigate it to some extent, but like there's no really getting rid of it because like it is what it is. Um, and uh, I think 
like being comfortable going to talk to the camera team so that when you want to integrate camera tracking onto what they're doing, they know who you are. You're not a foreigner coming up to them and they're like not sure you even have any idea what a camera is, right? I think it's important to remember that like all these virtual productions not here to take everyone's jobs away, which I think is was a big concern, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we don't need LED and we don't need lighting engineers. We don't need gaffers. We don't, why do we need all these people? The volume does it. No, this is another tool and filmmakers should use the tool to make a better product and we should be there to help enable them. And the thing about being a virtual production supervisor is that you're a head of a department. And like as a head of a department, if I was a head of production design, I would want to also learn how every other department works. Like how, do the, how does the gaffer work, right? I think, um, so that's one side of it is like understand production to not be part of the virtual production team. Um, but then it's also look, understand the VFX pipeline, understand what real time actually means in terms of what is the difference between visual effects and real time. They are two different th- like pipelines in terms of generating the assets, in terms of optimization, in terms of packing the textures. And it's not that you have to be able to do all those things, but you should be able to help your team troubleshoot problems. And I think that's really the sign of a good supervisor and a leader is that like you're at the front of the pack. You're not leading from behind, right? You're not pushing them forward. You're at the front of the pack, sort of dragging them with you as you try to forge new territory and you try to help troubleshoot new challenges related to things like why are these textures not working properly or why am I having trouble with Perforce or why um, am I unable to to get the production designer to have a conversation with me? Like, you know, and and solving these problems together as a group. And to me, that's the, that's the goal um, of being a supervisor and certainly a virtual production supervisor is know that entire pipeline, be able to talk intelligently about it and understand that, um, you know, you're coming to a table full of other people who are equally um, qualified and are trying to learn the thing that you're doing. And it's so difficult to do this because like you want to go in and like you always want to be playing with a new tech. But the reality is like 90% of the people you're on set with have never seen a volume before. They don't understand the technology. They don't know what a game engine is. They don't understand what camera tracking is. And you're there to like help them learn more about it. And I think that's that's the, the role you should have as a supervisor is be there to educate and inform and bring people along with you for the ride um, instead of trying to force them into a, a bucket that they won't necessarily go into. Right. So you say, um, yeah, it's in some ways similar to being a visual effects supervisor. They don't necessarily know how to do all of the jobs that they're supervising, but they understand them all. They've probably usually got there by being in a facility and being around all of those kinds of things being done and being talked about and soaked up a lot of that. Would it be similar in this environment in terms of how, how to get the knowledge? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, 100%, um, uh, you know, take the time to shadow an operator, take the time to shadow a TD, take the time to have a conversation with them about what their job is, right. And be part of the conversation about how they do their job. Right. And I think understanding those various pieces will, I think help inform you as a supervisor, not necessarily how to do the job better, but how to, you know, properly move the project forward and make sure that your team feels like, A, they're engaged properly, which is a huge part of this is like making sure your team is utilized correctly, right? You know, um, but also making sure that like you're informed enough that when a DP, a director, whatever comes to you and goes, oh, I really want to try X, Y, and Z, um, you're in a position where you can talk about what X, Y, and Z is from a point of, Hey, I, I may not have the answer, but I know enough about my team to know that, Hey, if we bring the TD over, we can have a conversation about doing this thing and be comfortable and be humble enough, right. That like, you don't always have to be the one with the answer. Like the biggest part of, of production is that people tend to create, um, uh, choke points and like, don't be a choke point. Just like bring the right people into the conversation at the right political time and understand the nuances of when the right political time is to have the conversation with all the parties to get the best result and the result that's inevitably going to cause you the least amount of pain because you're going to have gotten everyone on board and the people in your department are going to feel like they're included in the conversation, which is always such a big hurdle. And um, I saw someone say here, right, make friends with our department and camera department. I actually uh, I tell all of my people, uh, anyone who, who has joined me would, would tell me the same thing has gone on a stage walk. Um, we, 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 and certainly we as Lux, right, we're here to help these people. We know more in, incidentally about camera technology and display technology and tracking technology and in many cases, color pipelines and broadcast systems and Genlock and sync and all this stuff. Like we should be using that information to help them. So when they have trouble and when their cables aren't working, we should jump in and we should help them because I promise you when you try to put that Sputnik on their camera and you've helped them with a whole bunch of Genlock problems or sync problems, or even an SDI problem to the DIT that has nothing to do with you, they're going to look the other way and they're going to help you. Right. Or they're not going to bother you when you start to touch their camera. Right. Cause they're going to know that you're really there to protect them. Right. And that's, it's a huge part of this. Right. 
I remember being in visual effects in the beginning of my career there, and, and I think partly because I was an engineer before that, but my first instinct when I got in was make friends with the engineers because <laughs> yeah, exactly. they are they're the people that are going to help me when I'm screwed and I can't figure out my problem, and you want you want to be able to fall back on them then. Wonderful. Yeah, same. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, lots of questions here from people about LEDs. Um, talking about uh there's several questions on on led somebody asked about if you can say anything about the the prism stage in atlanta yeah sure again um uh should be uh, it's going up now it looks beautiful it's uh it's very large um you know really intended for large features or a uh, uh, large commercial work um large episodic um it'll be up and running end of may and available for rent um and it's a uh, um uh, it's going to have a bunch of new features that I can't quite talk about yet, but in the next yeah. couple of months, you'll be seeing some marketing bits from us that I think will hopefully reveal some of what we've been working on actually over the last two years and hopefully innovating in the way LED is deployed and used on shows and um, hopefully providing new features for people to be able to actually do more creative work inside LED volumes. And we're really excited to be able to share some of that in the coming months. Excellent. Look forward to to seeing it. Is there any way that people can follow you to find out about that? Yeah, definitely either follow me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page. I, I pretty much only post work stuff. But um, uh, we're also going to be revamping, or sort of, as this is our first stage, revamping um, the Prism social media um, pages as well, and um, eventually the NAP Virtual Studios pages as we start to do combined projects between Halon, Prism, and Lux, um, which the goal being a vertically integrated solution that you know can provide bad um, stage operations, services, um, pop-ups, and then, of course, the stages to do that work on. Excellent. Um, I, just a, a question I'll throw in in the middle of there is, um, do you, in terms of skills, this is a very selfish question. In terms of skills, um, where do you see the, the biggest shortages? Yeah, uh, troubleshooting. Um, I like, I, we don't look for specific skills. What we look for is people who are really, um, really, really, really eager to learn and really, really eager to troubleshoot. Um, we find that the biggest problem we have when hiring today is that people will not know how to get to the next step of troubleshooting and um we are uh and i say mostly this is in reference to lux and not maybe probably the rest of the group but like as lux um lux was always and is at the cutting edge right you know you're asking about custom engines like yes we're deploying custom engines we deploy custom led we deploy custom tracking we have our own products and the problem is that like there isn't always someone to call right so like understanding how to troubleshoot something and get to the next step of troubleshooting without having to pick up the phone and call somebody because you may not have anyone to call um, is I think the biggest thing that we're looking for. So when we're doing interviews, we ask a lot of questions about, you know, how do you approach um, troubleshooting? How do you approach solving problems? Um, can you solve problems? Can you solve problems on an island? Um, you know, um, and I think after that, it's um, uh, fluentness. I don't know if that's the right word, but being fluent in, um, uh uh production understanding you know what a dp's job is what the gaffer's job is etc and then and then after that it's the rest of the skills unreal um houdini maya you know we don't, like we assume that when you're coming to us for a job you generally have some base level 3d generalist skills right or at least we're going to teach you some of those so we're not looking for that necessarily um we're pretty comfortable teaching everyone how to use unreal i don't like you know we're, we've got a lot of resources there um i think it's less that it's much more the um, am I politically adept? Do I have the right soft skills? So I know how to troubleshoot and problem solve on my own and as a team. That's what we're looking for. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I know that the, the environments that you're working in, having worked in them myself, are very dynamic and can be stressful at times. It, 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 takes, it takes more than just knowing a piece of software. It takes a, a way of, of behaving and reacting and not melting down under pressure and being able to be to problem solve in that in that environment it's, it takes a special kind of person is there is there anything you can recommend to people to culture that um yeah be willing for it to take a long time i guess like be willing for this to like be a process like be willing to go to a broadcast show that maybe is a like i think let me back up i think i've learned the hardest lessons i've had to learn on not triple a shows and like right in many cases, I've learned the lesson of how to uh, cross my T's and dot my I's in terms of politics on small shows where people really are actually fighting, truly fighting to get to the next rung of their career. And like the reality is 
when you're on a Michael Bay show doing a triple level A show, there's a certain caliber of people that are there. Right. And those people, like they've already learned these lessons. Like it's hard to learn lessons on those shows that aren't much different and much more complex lessons. And you can still learn some of this, but I think a lot of it is actually about take the time when you're on some of the smaller shows to understand the political dynamic um, around you understand that like your job may seem like it's highly technical, but really what your job is is soft skills and communicating what's going on, being able to provide a proper buffer for your team or as a teammate, being able to properly cover for your friends and the people, your colleagues, right? Um, and being able to clearly communicate about the challenges. I, I used to say my job was 80% um, hard skills, tech skills, and 20% soft skills. And my job now is definitely 80% soft skills and 20% tech, right? And I, I think that that's what it, it takes to get to the next rung of your career, whether you're, you know, working um, on independent film and trying to get to commercial work or you're on commercial work and trying to get to, you know, the AAA studios. Um, I think it's, it's more about language communication um, and um, uh, clearly explaining yourself in, in the right situations. Great advice there for anyone looking to jump into the industry or make a, a career change. I know there's lots of people out there looking to break in for the first time or, or make transitions as, as lots of people in visual effects who are wanting to kind of jump over the over the fence um, and have a bit of a change. I think this is really shaking up a lot of people's careers, you know, this, these opportunities at the moment. So it's, it's great to hear what you um, what you look for in in people because, you know, it's good advice. We, you know, we do know there's, there's not a wealth of people like you can't go find someone who's done virtual production for 20 years. Right. So, yeah. like, you know, in like a weird way, like we're, we know we're going to get someone who only has three or four years of experience at that. And so, like, we look through that lens. That makes sense. Yeah. And working on some of the projects I have, they were kind of at the beginning, you know, 2016, 15 before, before um, trying to get people from anywhere that had some of the skills that was what you did then it was you know people from games who'd never worked in film people from film who'd never worked in real time um okay. just clodging those cultures together and now, now it's starting to to season a little bit more but it's still yeah. early days sure exactly yeah um somebody's asking here how how do you approach creating environments and virtual sets for use in a project do you approach it as production designers um or the same way you approach uh, building physical sets? Yeah, very much. We look at it not as shots, but as environments. And, you know, if you come from a VFX mindset, often you're looking at shots. How do I complete the shot? What's the shot? We don't do that. We think of it as an environment and then let the director and cinematographer figure out how to play in that environment. Um, so the goal is to always create a um, an encompassing area in an environment, not always a whole environment, because um, uh, optimization costs and compute costs, et cetera. But, like, we're trying to find... Um, really interesting areas that people want to explore and play with, right? And give people opportunities to, um, uh, I think give people the opportunity to make shots, although we shouldn't be thinking about how to do the shot ourselves, but give people the opportunity to find new ways to make shots they couldn't make in a different way, in, in the original, more traditional way. And I'm going to use an example is that like, um, uh, you think um, shooting in Notre Dame, right? Uh, the cathedral, um, uh, you would never have been able to get a shot looking down from one of the chandeliers without like really expensive rigging, right? But like in a virtual environment, we can build that out, right? And like, we can do that very quickly and give people the opportunity to do that. So like, think about where people may want to go or like engage your DP in conversations about where could he or she go that they couldn't go before as you're building the environment. So it's production design for sure. Um, but just like a good production designer, engage your DP and your, the rest of your team. And again, supervisor right so like you got to work as a department um and with other departments like really engage them in a conversation about okay like what would you like to do in this environment not not just build it in a vacuum i think a lot of people build environments in a vacuum for specific setups but really like in a much larger project the goal is build something that allows people to explore their creativity in a new way um and it may not always happen but like that's the way you should be thinking think about what can i do to break the mold um and then think about how big or small does my like hero area kind of need to be? Let's dress that. And then let's find creative ways to use that space. Um, so we very much think about it like production design. Also production designers are usually the first ones on shows. Um, and, and at least in terms of engagement um, from a studio. So they're usually the first one thinking about these things anyways, or concept artists and like thinking about environments and look dev and stuff like that. And I think having that same mindset um, will enable you to more um, quickly probably get on board in terms of engaging with, with these projects. You guys have 
production designers on staff? Do they generally come in with productions? Usually come in with productions and then we, we engage with them. But what we do is we, um, we try to have a dialogue with them about um, not just what environment do you want to make, but what tools would you want to use on stage? I mean, we think it's really important that um, we use a common language, right? And people are so afraid of change and so afraid of technology. And I understand, right? Like you walk into a big LED volume, you go, man, this is terrifying, right? It's a terrifying thing. You've been doing production design for 40 years. You're walking into this thing that takes away all of your tools, everything you've ever learned, right? And you feel like you immediately have to start over. And what we're trying to do is, and this is where the soft skills come in, right? Is like bridge the gap, find tools and build tools. That's what we do. We build tools for people to use and talk about using the same techniques that they've been using for the last 30 or 40 years, right? And because like, that means that we immediately remove one element of this, which is like people can be afraid of it still, but at least they can't go, oh, well, it doesn't work the way I like, right? Because we can go as well, you've been using the same thing for 30 years. Let's focus on building you a thing that enables you to do something very, very similar, right? And like give people back the tools they need. Um, and so that's sort of the conversation we have production designers and gaffers and DPs and everyone, but really production designers first and foremost. Right. So yeah, get, getting adoption essentially by giving people the things that they're, they're yeah. comfortable with as much as possible. Exactly. Now, there was a, a big part of the ask on, on Lion King was right. to, to make film making tools that um, the DP Caleb was comfortable with. He, yeah. you know, no, nobody at that point had any experience in virtual production. So it wasn't just that he didn't. <laughs> nobody did. So they wanted to be able to bring in the, the film crew and have them operate that without thinking, without trying to translate with without having to think about what they were doing, being able to use the tools that they're familiar with and just do what they do and not have to, there's a lot of, lot of translation in getting somebody to, to operate a piece of software they've never used before. But if they can step back from that, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. Um, somebody else here's asked, what are the roles of your brain bar? And do you, derive, I know that that is a, uh, a word that some people like and some people don't but um and how do you divide the duties yeah so um uh it's a bit complex in that um i think everyone um every show is different right every product is different and every vertical is different like what we do for a broadcast or corporate event we might not do for a film what we do for film we might not do for a live tv show we might not do for an immersive experience right so um keep in mind we work across a breadth of of shows uh of projects i think so what i'll say is i think as it pertains to film, which I think is where brain bar is most commonly used. And I, yeah, we struggle with the term a little bit because I don't really know what it means. Um, um, we've heard everything from volume control, the brain bar, to you name it. But like putting aside for a second, we think of this in, in three compartments. Um, it's uh, how do I deal with the engineering? How do I deal with the camera? And how do I deal with whatever the real time or playback engine is? And that ethos works for all shows, right? And some shows don't have camera tracking, so you don't have to worry about it. Some shows don't have real-time engines and they've got some playback of some kinds. So you're still worrying about that. And all shows require engineering. So it's really engineering, camera tracking, and then uh, real-time or playback. Um, and that's how our, those aren't the specific roles, obviously, but like depending on the show, we might have TVs or artists or operators or whatever, supervisor, we don't know. Um, and, and camera tracking, we're going to have supervisors, utilities, or, you know, specialists or object tracking, you know, we don't mocap, we have no idea. And then on the engineering side, it depends on how big the system is. We're going to have a, you know, a handful of systems engineers um, and, and, and video engineers and uh, guys who, and, and gals who deal specifically with that type of stuff. And that's exactly how we, we um, basically break stuff up. Right. And it depends, depends on the show and the budget, how many, yeah. how many of those in each area that you have. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, and you mentioned that you do, do your own um, tracking solution. Yeah, so we, we, well, we use Vicon and OptiTrack and Stipe okay. um, and a handful of others, uh, you know, uh, and Cam over the years. But we build out our own calibration systems and our own wands and our own spot mix and stuff like that. We found that, um, uh, we found that quite frankly, we found that by doing so and having, we have a bunch of our own products that people can get. But like one of the, one of the products that we have is, is camera tracking and calibrators and spot mix. And we found that we can, um, by building things in a specific way, are able to calibrate systems much faster than some of the off the shelf stuff. You know, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Technoprofs. They obviously build a lot of the stuff as well, but we do some of it in-house ourselves. Um, the goal being to just be a little bit more hands-on, understand the technology. And eventually we figured that um, by doing so, we actually found a better way of doing it. So we've gotten pretty fast at calibrating cameras and, and using tools for doing that calibration. We build ourselves. Fantastic. Um, I know we're coming close to the hour here, so I want to just ask you, 
what are you most excited about in the future? Awesome. You know, great question. Um, oh man. Um, I'm excited for people to continue to use real-time collaboration tools. I think to come together, not just in film and in broadcast, but for what I think is really going to be a, re a, a renaissance in human experience. And I think we talk about the metaverse and like, no one really knows what that means. And I get that, but like, I think if stepping back, what we're really looking for, I think all as individuals is the ability to, um, to interact in a, a natural way with people. Right. And I think that we're getting to a point where, and it may not be five years, it might be 10 years, it might be 15 years. What we're getting to is a point where we're going to be in a place and in a time where we can do that interaction almost at any time in a photo real way. That'll be indiscernible from the real world, but it'll actually be done virtually. Right. And in my mind, that's the metaverse. And I don't know what that means. I just know that or like what it is or how it gets made. I just know that, like it's a new way of exploring human interaction. That's not constrained by, things like time differences and physical distances or even planet. And I think ultimately, like, as we look at where we're going, we see it, you know, we see AI ML starting to empower, you know, the ability for us to communicate at distances. We see things like um, uh, uh, work in, in light field displays that's going to enable much more believable interactivity between people at distances. Um, and to me, that's what's really exciting. It's it's the ability to to do that, but then to tell stories inside that framework, right? To be able to tell stories that require people um, to really believe that they're in an environment that they're not really in. And we've all put on VR headsets and sure there's some really immersive experiences. Yes. But like none of you have ever taken a head, VR headset off and not realize that you've taken the headset off, right? No one's ever or put, I guess, put the headset on and not realize they put a headset on. Right. But that's what we're marching toward is this moment where like that, that collapses and the line between what's real and what's not completely goes away and it enables us to tell stories that we thought we'd never be able to tell. I think that is a thing for me that's very far out and maybe a little bit vague, but I, th I think is is redefining the human experience and the way that people interact with those around them in efforts to tell I think more encompassing and more immersive stories. Um, and I think, I think it'll happen in my lifetime. Like I think in the next 10 to 15 years, I'll be able to have a metaverse, a true metaverse experience where I won't be able to discern what's real and what's not. And I'll be able to be in part of an immersive story that I'll be able to interact with and be able to tell part of that story as well. And like the choose your own adventure of, of, of VR experiences that is photo real, that's completely believable that I can physically interact with. And for me, that's sort of the needle that I think we're hoping we're moving um, every, every bit slowly towards the future. Well, it feels like today we made it, uh whilst it was incremental you know a, a, a giant step in that direction from having downloaded the unreal 5 uh, city sample and, and kind of poked around with it on a laptop and just been you know that, that that thing looked like 10 times not 10 times several times better than commercials i was making 10 15 years ago that were taking days or even a week at one point to come back off a render farm and now watching it in in real time yeah. on a laptop is just it's mind-blowing to me you can ex extrapolate from that i think given a few more years and a, a bunch more clever people chewing on the problem that we're we're we're, we're there in some ways and yeah. we're just going to keep getting more there exactly. well yeah very 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 exciting time for me and uh i'm really really chuffed that we got to have you on the podcast today and i've i've thoroughly enjoyed it um i have so many more questions and i didn't get to everybody's out there so i'm sorry if i didn't answer ask you a question but uh maybe we can have you back sometime and and uh continue the conversation but I phil it's a, it's a total pleasure having you on today yeah thank you thank guys for putting this together it's really great and you know if anyone does have any questions feel free to reach out and you know if you guys want to send anything over i'm more than willing to continue the conversation of course if anyone needs any of our stuff feel free to to email we're always looking to take on cool new projects that help push the boundaries so we're looking forward to talking to everybody and thank you guys very much you bet well yeah the pleasure was ours and uh yeah so you've got uh, ways to keep in touch with phil anyone out there who's what who wants to um but yeah thank you again and thanks to all our listeners for tuning in today um catch us again in two weeks we'll have another great guest and um, yeah, if you're interested in what we do at CG Pro as a, a training center that focuses on virtual production um, and re real-time training and film and live events and that kind of stuff, then follow us at uh, becomecgpro.com. Um, yeah, what a, what a great session. I'm going to have to end it now. I don't want to, but thank you again.
Good night.